All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family in a unity that you've provided from eternity past, Father, for a family like this that's just so very grateful for every opportunity we've been given to fellowship in Christ's name. Thank you for giving us this family. Thank you for allowing us to love each other uh, and just appreciate all the grace and mercy that you've poured out in our lives as individuals. Father, we pray for those that are ill in the congregation that just can't be with us for whatever reasons. We just pray that you bring them back to us. Your will be done, of course, and in your timing. But we pray you bring them back to us uh, as soon as possible so that we might fellowship with them as well. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that they might be humbled before it's too late, and we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ forever and ever in heaven. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a evening of rejoicing like this one, uh, breaking of the bread, a reality for us. May we never become familiar with that. We just pray for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence. I want to start off um, with the topic of confidence. Self-confidence. Think about it. Where do we find this thing? Confidence. Self-confidence. If we're to direct it towards ourselves, where do we find this thing? For we believers, in Christ. It's that simple. Where do we find our confidence? That's the series title after all. The Lord is our confidence. And so we find our so-called self-confidence in Christ. And we, that comes with a little asterisk next to it, and I'll explain in a moment. Think of this as well. Who do we know that has ever been more confident in himself than Jesus Christ? No one. No one. We don't know anyone. We will never meet anyone who had more confidence in himself than Jesus Christ. This past week, the Spirit brought up the following concept up here on the board. The source of confidence. Jesus is the only person worthy of possessing this thing called self-confidence. He's the only person worthy of it because he was flawless. Because his confidence was righteously placed. So again, if we just put things into perspective right out of the gate, Jesus is the only person worthy of possessing so-called self-confidence. Our confidence must be in him. That's what we see in the Bible over and over and over. All the blessings, all the gifts, all the confidence are always tied to being in union with Christ Jesus. So it cannot be of ourselves. Why? Because we're depraved. <laughs> what are we going to be confident in aside from Christ? What are we going to find in ourselves aside from the Holy One that would give us any confidence or should give us any confidence whatsoever? 
And so that's the perspective we're starting off with this evening, that Jesus is the only person worthy of possessing self-confidence. Our confidence must be rooted in him, not ourselves. We might call this Christ confidence. In my head, that's how I think about it. I don't really care how you think about it, but that's how I think about it. I think of self-confidence versus Christ confidence. Self-esteem versus Christ esteem. Where do we get our esteem from even? A more basic concept in Christ. But the world says you need to build up your self-esteem. The world says you need to build up your self-confidence. The only person to ever walk the face of the earth that is worthy of true self-confidence was Christ Jesus. And we're not him. So the best we can hope for is on his merits alone. We have been given his righteousness. That's what we can see and that's what we can have confidence in. Amen? All right, there you go. So 1 Corinthians 2.16 uh, is our reference. We'll get there in a moment. So again, Jesus is the only person worthy of possessing self-confidence. Our confidence must be in him, not in ourselves. We must call this, or we might call this, Christ confidence. Yet, again, what does the world tell us about self-confidence? Well, for the most part, that we are the source of our own confidence. That's what the world tells us, that self-confidence is somehow even superior to Christ-confidence. Self-confidence is superior to Christ-confidence. If we purchase this lie, if we purchase this lie from the kingdom of darkness, we eventually exhaust ourselves into a state of depression. Let me say that again. If we purchase this lie about self-confidence from the kingdom of darkness, we eventually exhaust ourselves because we become dependent on ourselves, on our own merits, on our own merit system, which is from the world, of course. We eventually exhaust ourselves into a state of depression, being pressed down, realizing we can't hold uh, the weight of the world on our shoulders. And that's why this week's blog is actually titled The Great Depression. So if any of you have ever dealt with any kind of depression, I would say every single person in this room has. Admittedly or not is not the issue, but every single person has been depressed somehow, some way in their lives. And so I wrote this blog, and hopefully uh, you read it. Matter of fact, I'm kind of demanding that you read it. It has a lot more meaning uh, than you might realize at face value. Again, the point on the board, the source of confidence. Jesus is the only person worthy of possessing self-confidence. Our confidence must be in him, not in ourselves. We might call this, again, for the sake of clarity, for the sake of perspective, we would call this Christ confidence. Because we have been baptized into union with him by God, the Holy Spirit, we have been given his mind as we noted on Tuesday. Now, go to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. First Corinthians 2, 10. So this is a recap, but I've actually added much more to it in the passage itself. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. 
For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. You might translate that this evening into, who are you to tell me where my confidence lies, O worldly one? You don't appraise me. Again, maybe you don't have to say it that sassy. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have been, we have been given something. We have the mind of Christ. Again, it's his mind that I have up here on the board. This is what he has to say about it. I'm the only one worthy of possessing self-confidence. I'm the only righteous one. I'm the perfect one. You can look to me for this thing called self-confidence. Don't look to the world because the world lies through its teeth and says there's some value in depraved man. Our confidence then must be in him, not ourselves. We might call this Christ confidence. And because we have his mind, therefore, to that degree, we have this confidence. And that's why we study the word of God. And that's why the older you get, the more of the word of God that you have in, circulating in your soul, the more confident you become. And it's a beautiful thing, right? It's a beautiful thing. We've been on this series now. Think about it. The Lord is our confidence. We've been on this series for 28 parts for a reason. He makes no mistakes. 28 parts. So the Spirit's been trying to convince us of this one simple truth, as our series title has stated all along. The Lord is our confidence. The Lord is our confidence. As soon as we forget that, we're in deep kimchi. Does that, does that make sense? We're in deep doo-doo. The Lord is our confidence. That's 28 parts? For real? We must be slow learners. And don't blame Sunday. <laughs> Just because I came out and said something. I was, I was there. I was right there. I had the whole thing. And you blew it on Sunday. <laughs> the Lord is our confidence. This evening, we're going to do a little surveying of Holy Scripture which is often the case on the way out of a mine shaft. We're, we're emerging from this deep dive on this topic of confidence and where we find it. So we're going to do a little surveying of Holy Scripture, so hopefully your fingers are nice and 
nimble. And what we'll discover is that confidence and faith are close cousins in the Bible. We're going to see how intrinsically bound they are to one another even up here on the board. So I'll start this way just as a survey, just a quick survey. Faith, the word faith in its various forms shows up in the Bible 250 times. The word confidence in its various forms shows up 46 times. We might think of faith as the gift and confidence the result, loosely for our purposes, that is, in this series. That's how I want you to think about um, those two concepts. Faith as the gift, confidence the result. Faith the gift, confidence is the result, which means one precipitates the other. One doesn't lead the other. One precipitates the other. One is the root cause for the next. And that's how we have to think about this series that we're on. Because we can't say that the Lord is our confidence and then have no faith. So you see, that's when we're coming back out. He's already guiding us maybe to our next topic. I don't know exactly what that's going to be. But this is what he wants you to think about uh, as we exit this series. Think of faith as the gift and confidence the result. So let's see what Holy Scripture has to say about this. And we're going to begin our survey of Holy Scripture in reverse order, just so you know, beginning with our primary topic, which has been confidence. Uh, and then we're going to end with the topic of faith. So with that said, go to Proverbs 3, verse 26. Proverbs 3, verse 26. Proverbs 3, 26. So again, we're going to survey the concept of confidence first. Proverbs 3.26, For the Lord will be your confidence. That is almost our title, isn't it? Any good, any good message, by the way, is a ripoff. You know that. I know there's a lot of pastors out there that like to be uh, snazzy and uh, original and all this kind of stuff, and uh, it's garbage. Anybody that claims they've, you know, they've got something new and original, beware. We're supposed to rip off the Bible. That's our job. We are nothing more than glorified waiters. That is it. Maybe bus drivers. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Here, here's some more food. That's as good as it gets. We don't cook the food. We don't grow the food. We just serve it. So there you go. Perfect example. For the Lord will be your confidence. I didn't say that. It's not my snazzy title. That's the Bible. And will keep your foot from being caught. Go to Proverbs 14, 26. Proverbs 14, 26. Proverbs 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, there is what? Strong Confidence, fear, respect of the Lord. There is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. How about Isaiah 32, 17? Isaiah 32, verse 17. This is where I'm going to slow down a moment, because something interesting happens here. 
something maybe you've never thought of before about the topic of righteousness, Isaiah 32, verse 17. <clears throat> and the work of righteousness will be peace. You see that right out of the gate we see that righteousness does something. That righteousness isn't Isaiah 32, 17. Isaiah 32, 17. That righteousness does work. You see it? The work of righteousness is what? Peace. There's a result. There's an outcome. So righteousness doesn't, isn't just something to possess. It actually expresses itself. We're going to see a little bit more about expression as well. Righteousness, the work of righteousness will be peace. Now here's where it gets interesting. In the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. Hmm. So righteousness has a notion of service or servitude to it? Righteousness actually can serve us? Righteousness has that aspect to it where it has a service arm to it, if you would? It doesn't just mean to be perfectly good and right. It also has activity. It actually serves the service of righteousness, quietness, and our main topic, confidence forever. So this is a very interesting statement. Let me give you the, uh, the Hebrew. Uh, it's uh, Masa uh, Sadaka in the Hebrew. It means the service, or it's translated here as the service of righteousness. Also translated, the effect of righteousness. Or the wages of righteousness. Isn't that nice? The wages of righteousness. How does it pay out? The effect of righteousness. Because it serves us. It actually has activity to it. The final happiness of the blessed in Christ's kingdom is always spoken of as a state of rest and quietness. And that's where we find our confidence. In other words, a confident person, someone assured of their righteousness in Christ, you know what? They sleep well at night. They sleep well at night. The Bible says so. Again, a confident person, someone assured of their righteousness in Christ, sleeps well at night. The Bible says so. Again, look at verse 17. And the work of righteousness will be peace, and the service of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. What we conclude then is that the righteousness we receive as a result of the gift of faith serves a purpose to God's glory through us. Again, I know that's a mouthful. What we can conclude is that the righteousness we receive as a result of the gift of faith serves a purpose to God's glory through us. Remember Romans 1.17? It says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So there's a lot going on there. I realize that. So let's take this a little bitwise, slow down. First, we receive righteousness by faith. That's how we receive it. It's a gift, like its precursor, you see. Righteousness is a gift, like its precursor, faith. So in other words, faith even has activity. Faith 
uh, is the precursor, comes before uh, righteousness. Now, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 32, 17, that righteousness serves the purpose of granting us something. What? Quietness and confidence forever. Quietness and confidence forever. The key then is to understand that righteousness is a function of faith. So in other words, if we want this righteousness that serves us quietness and confidence, we have to first understand, which is where we get back to ultimately tonight, that it's by faith that all of this happens. Without faith, all this is no. Without faith, none of this happens. Again, what Isaiah is trying to explain is that righteousness serves the purpose of granting us quietness and confidence forever. So again, the key is to understand that righteousness is a function of faith. Up here on the board, Romans 3.22 reads, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. You see that righteousness is through faith. You can't go around faith. You don't, you don't end run faith to get to righteousness. Righteousness is through faith in Christ Jesus. And we have to understand that. So when we unravel backwards, so we've been talking about the, uh, the Lord is our confidence. Where does that come from? What the Spirit's doing, He's kind of stepping back. And He's stepping back again. And He's saying at the root, the root cause of all of this, of course, is faith. And God gives a measure of faith to each as he desires. And God gives grace to who? The humble. So if you want all this confidence, you've got to be shooting for something a little deeper. You have to be shooting for this little thing called faith. Probably why Jesus used to get so frustrated. Jeez, if you just had faith of a mustard seed. Just a little bit. <laughs> it's so powerful if you have it. If you don't, all bets are off. You might know the doctrine of righteousness. You may know all kinds of fancy doctrines. Oh, I know the doctrine of justification, propitiation, reconciliation, and all these things. But if you have no real faith in those things, guess what? It's meaningless. It means you're puffed up. It means you have maybe high IQ or something. But it doesn't serve you. Does that make sense? It doesn't serve you because that kind of thinking isn't righteous. That's not 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.16. That's not the mind of Christ. That's the mind of Satan. That's arrogance stepping forth and sort of usurping the service of righteousness itself. So God's trying to sanctify us. God's trying to do a good work in us. And what the Spirit's saying is, it's great that we want confidence in the Lord, but we can't frustrate how God delivers us unto that place. Again, the instigating principle up here on the board. I know I'm trying to weave a lot together. So concentrate. Again, the word faith in its various forms shows up in the Bible 250 times. I'm going to check that, by the way. I use a piece of computer software to do that. It just seems low. But anyways, it's a lot. The word faith in various forms shows up in the Bible 250 times. The word confidence in its various forms shows up 46 times. Uh, that still constitutes a pretty high number. Uh, we might think of faith as the gift and confidence the result. Faith as many other gifts or many other results, one of them happens to be 
confidence. Again, that's just loosely for our purposes uh, in this series. So I want to venture into some New Testament scripture now for the topic of confidence. Go to Acts 4.13. Acts 4.13. So we're going to just continue to survey. This, all of tonight is just a survey, so just so you know. Even as I'm teaching uh, topics and trying to uh, thread this all together, we're still in survey mode. Just keep that in mind. I'm only going to mention things that tie back to what the Spirit's really trying to say this evening. Acts 4.13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, uh, uh, Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Again, Acts 4.13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What was the one thing that their observers failed to understand about Peter and John? They had faith. That's the thing that, they, that confounded them. They had faith. Faith might arguably be the most confounding thing on this planet. Because to an unbeliever, to an unregenerate person, it makes no sense. None. Unbelievers have faith in empirical data. Show me and I'll believe. So faith really is confounding to those that don't understand it. And so in this case, in Acts 4.13, this is what we see. Peter and John had faith. Those that observed them uh, really assessed them as just uneducated, untrained men, and therefore they were amazed. By what, though? Were they amazed by their, um, how do you think they arrive, arrived at, hey, these guys are uneducated and untrained? Probably because they talk like fishermen, you know. I'm not saying they talk like that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Sorry, guys, right? I'm not saying, it's, but it was probably obvious, you know. It was probably obvious. Hey, these guys aren't educated. Look at them, I, you know. But they had confidence. It was the confidence that amazed them. And that's the thing that confounds unbelievers when they run into people like you. You have confidence. You have faith. I mean, their confidence, after all, couldn't possibly be in their uneducated and untrained minds, right? I mean, that can't be what they were confident in. That couldn't be the root cause. And Frankly, the kingdom of darkness says these same things about you behind your backs. It says the same thing about you. Probably, oh, here comes the Jesus freak. Oh, here comes the Bible thumper. Watch out for this one. And look at them, the audacity. They live in a trailer, and they're more confident than I am. What's the problem there? They're the janitor. Or they, they clean toilet. Yes, yeah, so? 
They, they, they have an IQ of about 14 words, and seven of them are swears. They're certainly not, un, they're not educated like me. Where do they get off with this confidence? You see, that kind of confidence is threatening. It's unnerving to unbelievers. And so they talk behind your backs. Not that you didn't know this already. But that's what, exactly what they were doing in Acts 4.13. Who are these guys? Threatened. Why do you even care? Why bring them up? If they're insignificant peons, why bring them up? Because you're threatened. That's the power of faith in this world. It scares people. Good. I say good, because that might be the impetus. That might be the thing that draws somebody to Christ eventually, their own arrogance, if you would. We've seen it in the Bible. On a fleshly scale of values, you all are enigmas. The world doesn't understand you because it is your faith as a gift given by God, a pristine one at that, that is the source of your confidence. And that's very threatening because faith cannot be controlled by other people. Faith makes you untouchable. See, if you have to go like this, here's my resume, this is why I'm so confident. Well, look at my resume, you know, they, roll, they scroll theirs out. Look at my little grandchildren. Look at them all. Boom. Well, look at mine. You only have two. I have 200. Everything's a contest, right? I have the right to more confidence than you because I have more of whatever it is we're supposed to value in this world. For men, it's usually money and prestige and this kind of... For women, it, I don't know what it is. Women, ladies, I don't know. Seems to be something to do with beauty or something. I don't know. You decide. But you will be discriminated against because you're a threat. The world will never be able to understand this about you, so it will discriminate against you. As Jesus said, it would. Up here on the board, John 15, 18 to 19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Take comfort in that. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Spiritual prejudice just might be among the most powerful prejudices in this world if not the most. And as we know from experience, prejudice is the root cause of hatred. When someone doesn't understand it and they're too small of a person, they hate. Their prejudice leads to hate. Well, the world is prejudiced against you because you have something it doesn't. You have something it cannot have unless it repents and submits to the Lord, to the gospel truth about salvation and for that you will be hated but you're loved by your brothers and sisters in Christ which is why we're called to fellowship together like tonight because we are recharged as a family we go out there it's hell amen everybody's trying to take a shot at you 
They may smile right at your face. And the moment you turn around, they stab you in the back. There goes the Jesus freak. Why? Because deep down, their flesh hates you. Hates you. Even some of your friends, which is why we're not supposed to fellowship and become friendly with the world. Their flesh hates you. They may say on a regular basis, I love you, friend. But their flesh despises you, hates you. What makes you think? <laughs> They've already said no to the gospel, chances are. No to God the Holy Spirit, who convicts everyone of the gospel truth. They've said no to that. In a way, that's hate. What about you then? If that's the greater, what about the lesser? If they can throw stones at and reject Christ, they did it in the flesh, but even today with the gospel, they reject the power of the Spirit in evangelizing them. What makes you think they're going to be any kinder to you, even though to your face they're smiling at you? Prejudice is the root cause of hatred. Okay, go back to, you still at Acts 4.13? All right, let's, let's read that again. Now, all of that from this passage. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Again, it's important that they were amazed at their confidence. They could not, it confounded them, could not connect the dots. Their observers possessed a seething prejudice against them, just like your observers do today. Up here on the board, an old friend of ours from, oh, I don't know, the first time the Spirit introduced it, but we've certainly seen this many times from this pulpit. Your faith is offensive. Grace is offensive to man. Any result of it is also offensive to man. The human flesh does not like that God gives freely to us because it's a departure. It's a departure from the payment system, from the economy of the world, which is, as I've taught you, the currency is creature credit. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't get to purchase that kind of thing. You don't get to enjoy that kind of confidence until you have this kind of resume. Oh, no, no, no. You don't get to have that kind of confidence until, and you pick your poison. Grace is offensive. Man hates it. The flesh, the human flesh hates that you have faith in God's grace. Hates that you can sleep at night with a itsy-bitsy little resume. Grace is offensive to man. Any result of it is also offensive to man. For example, godly faith that results in confidence confounds irritates, and becomes a cause for hatred against the possessor of it. Godly faith that results in confidence confounds, irritates, and becomes a cause for hatred against the possessor of it. We've got to get back to our key principle now. Keep that principle on the board in mind. Where we're trying to, This key principle, we're trying to make a connection between confidence and faith. Remember, we're in survey mode 
up here on the board. Faith. <clears throat> the word faith in its various forms shows up in the Bible 250 times. The word confidence in its various forms 46 times. We might think of faith as the gift and confidence the result. Okay? You might even say that faith is the precursor. Okay, let's go, let's do more in the New Testament. Yep, we've got plenty of time. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. We looked at some verses about confidence in the Old Testament. Now we're in the New Testament. We just saw how Peter and John confounded those, the arrogant clan back in the day, the ones who ultimately, as a group anyways, hated Christ, and therefore they hated them, hate you now. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Take your self-confidence and throw it in the trash can, in other words. That's what the Bible has to say about, excuse me, self-confidence. Confidence. Confidence that originates with self, in other words. And please don't be confused. Don't be confused. It's okay to be self-confident if you're in Christ. That's different. So that's not what we're saying. This self here that I'm talking about means that it originates with the flesh. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So you can be very self-confident. Jesus was self-confident. Paul was self-confident. Peter was self-confident. It's fine to be self-confident. Uh, David was self-confident. It's okay to be self-confident as long as your confidence is based in the Lord. I'm making the distinction using self to point back to the flesh here. Okay? So, uh, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants. So here's where we make the intrinsic connection to our previous point regarding righteousness serving, even. Righteousness serving a purpose to God's glory. Okay, keep that in mind. All right, we have an old friend, another old friend. Go to Philippians 3, verse 3. Philippians 3, verse 3. Just to really drive that point regarding self-confidence home. Philippians 3, verse 3. But we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Boy, that just seems like antithetical, doesn't it? Like the exact opposite of self-confidence. What about all the self-help books then? On the New York Times bestseller list, what about that? Throw them in the garbage. That's literally how much they're worth. Just because some guy makes $10 million on a self-help book does not mean it has any real value. Certainly not eternally. Throw it in the garbage. People would be so offended by you saying, oh my, are you, are you, what? What do you mean, what? I got the Bible. What do I need that garbage for from some fleshly moron who hates my Lord? Why, do I, why, do, why would I even give that person any voice in my head? Why would I even read that, that person's words? 
They don't care about my Lord. Put no confidence in the flesh. That's really... <laughs> we should just have like a rubber stamp, you know what I'm saying? Like a big old rubber stamp that every time some self-help book comes out, you go, boom, boom. Right on the cover, boom, boom. You know what I'm saying? Next, boom, boom. Put no confidence in the flesh. That's all you need to know, even if the book's this thick. Sorry, dude. Boom, boom. Put no confidence in the flesh. That's all you need to know on that subject that some poor moron spent two years writing. That's all you need to know. Put no confidence in the flesh. That's what I love about the Word of God. It's actually very simple. Uh, it makes life really easy. Those who partake in leadership positions in a church like this one, even, are to exemplify these principles as Holy Scripture reveals. Go to 1 Timothy 3.13. 1 Timothy 3, verse 13. Again, we're just in survey mode. We're eventually trying to connect uh, confidence and faith. That's what we're coming back to. It's great to have the Lord as our confidence, but we can't fake it till we make it, in other words. There has to be substance behind that confidence. We've caught glimmers of it along the way, over 28 parts, but he's really driving this point home now. 1 Timothy 3.13 For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in other words, leaders, someone like a DJ back there, uh, he has to exemplify confidence. I, I could never promote anybody in a church like this uh, if they didn't have confidence in who they were, who and what they were in Christ. They're not ready. It doesn't mean they don't have a good heart, good intention. That's not the point. There has to be a confidence there. And what I know about Holy Scripture is if the confidence is really there, then the faith has preceded it. And it's the faith that has to be tested for any position of authority in a church. How about this up here on the board? Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a sincere, true, pure, real, genuine, without hypocrisy, all of that. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. If, if, in other words, if you're going to approach the holy God of the universe, huh? if you go like this, I think this is going to work. Isn't that how a lot of people approach the gospel? I think it's going to work. So I'll, I'll say this little prayer over here. I'll get my little John 3.16 coin. I'll put it in my pocket, and I'll hope for the best come the day I die or the rapture. I think this is going to work. No. Whoa, wait a minute. What? No. No, no, no. Let us draw near with a sincere, true, pure, real, genuine, without hypocrisy. That, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. God's intention is to purify our hearts for service. Make us righteous. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart for her, His purposes. means to be made righteous. Positionally, we're already perfect. But experientially, this sanctification process, there's a whole lot of scrubbing and scraping going on. Amen? 
right? Whole lot of cleaning going on. And he says he washed it over. He's like, get those bubbles ready, guys, because it's bad. That grime's been there for a long time. Some of you like this. Nope, 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 nope. Try to end. Nope, nope, nope. I got to stop doing it. I was ripping my shirt. These are the things I tell myself. God's intention is to purify <laughs> the shirt on the inside. God's intention is to purify our hearts for service. Isn't that what Romans 12, 1 to 2 talks about? Our full body for service? Ultimately, that's the end goal. That we're righteous to the degree where we're all in. That's what, that's what purified hearts look like. We're made for service. That's what we get out of bed in the morning to do, is to serve. Because isn't that what we learned? Uh, was it Isaiah too? Uh, Isaiah, right? Uh, that righteousness serves? That the righteous man lives by faith? That's what he's trying to do to sanctify us, to be more like Christ. Christ came to what? Serve. Not to be served. Another barometer for our spiritual growth. What's a person's heart look like in terms of servitude? If they just gum flap all the time, and then anytime a need comes up, or anytime this happens, uh, and they're just never there, that's not a good indicator of what's going on inside. Not, con not judging anybody, I'm just saying that's how it goes. Because if you had real faith, you'd have all the fruit as well. So God's intention is to purify our hearts for service. Romans 12, 1-2 speaks to that. He washes us with the word, as we just read, and gives us faith that lasts forever, with the result that our confidence in Him soars. We are truly blessed when our hearts have been purified this way. So said Jesus Christ. I didn't say this. Look at on the board here, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I didn't say that. That's Jesus Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart. That means if you're pure in heart, you get blessed. That makes sense. There you go. Well, blessed to what? Give. Who else? Who said that? Jesus you see, that's what sanctification looks like. That's why you don't have to have all kinds of scripture memorized. It's about what's going on in your heart. What's your motivation? What's your love like? What's your faith like? Because if, if you have these things, the rest of the things just precipitate from there. And when you begin serving, as Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When you begin to lay down your life for others, another saying from Jesus Christ himself, guess who gets blessed? You do. That's the way you live. That's how righteousness serves you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Is this an overnight process? Nope. This is why we study doctrines like sanctification, so we aren't overwhelmed by the violent collision between our depravity and God's perfect righteousness. So when you read this week's blog, I really do want you to be encouraged, knowing 
that nobody here is perfect. No one is perfect. So don't ever be downtrodden. Say, wow, my heart, I look in the mirror, my heart is just, it's not even like kind of, it's brown. <laughs> it's not like clear at all. It's like dirty water. <laughs> Hardly anything pure going on in there. Fine. You're humble enough to admit it. God can work with humility. Cannot work with arrogance. I mean, he can, but it's going to hurt. Just remember, nobody's perfect. So, with what little time we have left, we need to press on. Again, we're still surveying Scripture on the topic of confidence. 1 John 3.21. Go there. 1 John 3, verse 21. First John three twenty one. <clears throat> it's beautiful because we don't have to wait until heaven to figure out, hey, did we do anything that was good? <laughs> like, how did we do in terms of righteousness? Did we do anything that was good? God says, listen, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a heart, I'll give you the faculties, I'll give you a good conscience even to know right from wrong. I'll give you the faculties, let's leave it at that, to be able to discern whether or not your confidence is true or not. 1 John 3.21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What do you see? If your heart is bothering you, if it's sick, and when you read that blog, you're going to see a sick heart. That was me. My whole life wasn't a shambles, so read it within context. But there was a real struggle going on in my own heart, and it was sick. If your heart does not condemn you, then you can have confidence before God. If your heart condemns you, you have something to think about. You have something to confess. In other words, if our heart, which is being purified through sanctification, says, good, good, faithful servant, then we have a right to our confidence. If, however, as was the case with myself recently, your heart says, bad, <laughs> you unfaithful servant, then we do not have the right to our confidence. That's a scary thing. It's like it's like having um, it's like how was a good example. It's like having to walk across. All right, when I was in Colorado, my family still makes fun of me from this, but we went on this like apparatus thing. You know those like jungle gym things that people pay to like you hook up and you walk on these beams and stuff like that and rope courses. They call them like rope courses and like you know and everybody wears helmets and stuff like that. Yeah, well, I don't know what the heck happened. I locked up, right? I don't, to this day, I don't even understand it. Just happened. Probably for this service. Okay? Ah, see? It wasn't me. It was for God's purposes. Anyways, this thing's dangling 500 feet over a chasm. You fall off this thing, you're dead. Kind of cerebral up here, you know what I mean? I'm like, all right. Let's see. Gravity, 9.8 meters per second squared. Okay. I'm going to hit hard. I'm probably going to die. So it was bad enough with a thing. Okay, taking away your confidence, 
You walk away, you turn your back on God, he says, great, your confidence is gone. Okay, you might as well just go like this. Click. Put it in your pocket and walk the beam without any support whatsoever. That's what it's like. When you lose confidence in him, that is exactly what it's like. You've got a long way to fall. And it's scary as hell. And he's going to let you know. So, listen, we're unfaithful servants. We don't have a right to our confidence. Click. And you're going to pay. In fact, it is during those times that we lose all confidence because being unfaithful to God is tantamount to abandoning Christ personally. And this comes at a severe price for reaping what we sow results in ungodliness, curses, fears, you know. And in my case, a form of real depression. That was what happened to me. I got depressed. I mean, you probably didn't even notice it. Because like I said, it wasn't pervasive. But it was nonetheless very real. Trust me. Very real. Why? Unconfessed sin. Come on, do things my way for a little while. Oh, yeah? Click. Oh, so you want to be... Oh, you want to put a little confidence back in the flesh. You began by the Spirit, now you want to perfect yourself in the flesh. That sounds like Holy Scripture, doesn't it? Good luck with that. Oh, and by the way, since you're a pastor, to whom much is given, much is required, I'm going to crush you. <laughs> you can laugh, it's all right. I'm over it. I've been delivered. But it wasn't fun at the time. And it's probably why this lesson is coming out right now. Like I've told you in the past, not about me, but let me tell you, he, he uses some major jackasses behind pulpits. 90-something percent of the stuff I teach on that you guys are convicted, I've done. I've already gone through it. He's like, yeah, I'm going to let you fail in this area, like, severely. So that when it comes time to, te to teach on it, like a few years later, you'll have something to say and you'll have real empathy for the sheep. Kind of sounds a little bit, no offense to the Holy Christ, God became a man? Ooh. Ooh. Why? To become our mediator. So that he could sympathize with us. It says it in the Bible. There's lots of reasons God will let uh, certain people flop around and become things that they really shouldn't be. In his case, he had no uh, reason other than through love. In our cases, we do it to ourselves, and then he uses something evil for good later on, like you're all learning, that kind of a thing. But you want to take this on yourself? There goes your confidence. And it gets worse. The longer you let that thing run out, the worse it gets. Again, verse 21, 1 John 3, 21. And I've only got like a minute before i got to close. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If it does, well, I just gave you one example of what happens. 
One more verse. Go quickly. 1 John 5.14, since we're in 1 John. And this is where it gets good. Thank God. Whew. Right? <sighs> 1 John 5.14. There's upside. 1 John 5.14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Ah. That's really good news, isn't it? Ah, thank God. Really, really good news. But like most good news is in the Bible, there's a condition. Let me give it to you up here on the board. James 1, 6 to 8. But he must ask in faith. There you go. You see how faith is the underpinning? He must ask in faith. I want to be more confident. I want to have more courage. I want to be stronger in my relationships. I want to have a better relationship with my Lord. I want to stop being dragged away by the lusts of the flesh. Well, it's faith you're after. Because if you have faith, you're delivered from the temptation. You're delivered from the things that used to trip you up. You don't end up in the pit like I just described. He must ask in faith without any doubting, a.k.a. with a pure heart, intentions, no hypocrisy in other words. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Listen, the last thing you want to be when you're 500 feet over a chasm, untethered is unstable. Right? The last thing you want to be is unstable. You already don't have confidence. Now you're unstable. You're going. You stay on that beam long enough, guess where you're going? Whoop. Headlong, and it's going to hurt. You must ask in faith without any doubting. Now compare that, and then we'll close. Compare that with our previous verse, verse 14, 1 John 5. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I have a conclusion, but I'm going to hold it until Sunday. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word this evening. Thank you for your love. Amen. That's it. Oh, you see? You guys are all comfortable. Oh, but where's the rest of it? <laughs>